It's playing during the credits. I really do recommend listening to more credit music because they are so good. All right, well, this is the end of my show, 630 as Hit Up. And uh, I just want to thank you for listening in. I am Gaze Into Death, and you've been listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, my show, Old Fashioned New. I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to Gray Matter, and uh, I hope you all have a fantabulous, wondertastic day. Well, uh, good evening. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. And, of course, the big news last week, the retirement of Anthony Kennedy. We'll get to that in a second. Um, you know, if you're under 65, in other words, you're not collecting uh, Social Security retirement benefits, you actually have never lived under uh, an era in which the justices of the Supreme Court haven't been majority appointed by the Republicans. Uh, that's just the way it is. And the court is conservative. I wanted to call attention to a really— Oh, it's the most conservative of the three branches of our government. Yeah, and it it punted on a lot of cases this year, to be quite frank with you. I also think some of the cases were, were kind of trivial— which we can get to in a second. But one thing I do want to recommend is the uh, article in Sunday's New York Times that's got wonderful graphs, charts, tables, whatever you want to call it, showing the historical nature of the Supreme Court by Alicia Parlopiano and Jugal K. Patel. I'm not familiar with either one of those writers. I think they must be specialists. Adam Liptak is the normal Supreme Court just uh, journalist for the New York Times, and he's got a very good analysis as well. But this shows the historical nature of the court uh, dating back really to uh, the 1940s. And I think they persuasively make the argument showing how median, the median justice during the uh, 60s and 70s was Byron White. Then it changed to Sandra Day O'Connor. And then it became Anthony Kennedy. And one interesting factoid of this last term was that Judge Roberts actually uh, voted with the liberals twice, and Kennedy didn't vote with them at all. Uh, one of the important cases where Roberts flipped and voted with the liberals, by the way, was uh, a case related to warrants. This involved cell phones, and it involved a case here in Michigan. Uh, and all it basically reaffirmed was the police have to get warrants. <laughs> it's right in the Bill of Rights. It's right there. It's a, it's it's a, a basic. It's originalism all over the map, and yet the four conservatives voted against it. Um, so I think this is going to become Justice Roberts's era of being the deciding vote. And what I've looked at at the historical record is that Roberts and Kennedy don't vote differently very often. Roberts, for instance, did vote to uphold most of the Affordable Care Act. Roberts, because he's the chief justice, has a much more historical approach to the way he thinks about cases. So don't automatically assume, for instance, that Roe versus Wade will be overturned. Um, 
he may not want to see that sort of a disruptive thing in American society. And by the way, that's not going to make abortion illegal. Might make it illegal in the United States. But well-to-do women, middle-class women, upper-middle-class women, women who um, may be entering college or whatnot, they'll just be able to go to Canada or Europe and get abortions. Well, or the extent to which abortion might be outlawed in some states but remain legal in others and therefore travel to those states. The way it was when I was in junior high, you know. I can remember, I grew up in Appalachia, I grew up in a college town, but the euphemistic phrase... She went to New York for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was because... Visiting New- relatives in New York. New York had uh, legal abortion. And the Roe case, by the way, was a case involving a Texas state law. So the chipping away of abortion rights is, is uh, beyond dispute. That's been going on. This is a uh, wedge issue that, uh, I, frankly, there's no compromise on it. <laughs> I mean, well, you, of course, you, it's, it's not unrelated to health care because with advances in medicine and both in prenatal care and in the avoidance of pregnancy, uh, there's a whole range of options open to women today as long as they have access to health care. Sure. And so abortion is in some ways uh, a, a moot point. Uh, but this tendency and this trend towards denying uh, women access to health care that they may wish to seek out. Uh, is maybe the bigger problem. I think another really interesting thing about the graphs in this uh, case, because they they look at seven cases where Kennedy was the swing vote in key cases. Uh, One was the gay marriage case. One was a voting rights case. One was the um, Citizens United case. The other was, uh, of course, uh, the uh, gun rights issue involving the District of Columbia. He voted with the conservatives on all of those instances, and those were all decided 5-4. He voted with the liberals, of course, on the gay rights case, and on this interesting case, the court ruled that the EPA has the authority to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. This was called Massachusetts versus the EPA. Voted with the liberals there. So the EPA is allowed to regulate greenhouse gases, contrary to anything you may have heard from... Oh, Scott Pruitt. Scott Pruitt. Sometimes. and Or the Donald. And, of course, uh, notoriously, uh, Kennedy did vote uh, with the conservatives in the Bush v. Gore uh, case that allowed Bush to become president without a full recounting of the votes in the state of Florida. But one other very interesting thing is it shows how the tenure of justices since 1937 have steadily gone up. And that... Younger appointments being part of that. Younger appointments, people living longer, but also justices not moving on the way they used to. They used to sometimes be on the court for a little while and then... Charles Evans Hughes, for instance, ran for president in 1916. Um, Arthur Goldberg became, he was appointed to to the United Nations. Um, Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, only appointed one justice, and Jimmy Carter appointed none. 
LBJ appointed Thurgood Marshall, uh, who was the solicitor general, solicitor um, arguer in the uh, Brown versus the Board case from the Warren Court. But the Warren Court was very Republican. Um, well, that's another thing that people need to remember is the, the, the bigger, long picture is that uh, there have been a number of instances in American history where conservative justices over time see a bigger picture. And you sure. mentioned Chief Justice Roberts, you know, awareness of what that position actually entails, sort of philosophically speaking, is that uh, Earl Warren, for example, was a big disappointment to conservatives. Uh, the John Birch Society uh, wanted to impeach, mm -hmm. you know, Chief Justice Earl Warren. Um, you know, contemporary uh, Americans don't see it that way. It's like, oh, that's a breakthrough moment where the court you know, decades late, finally catches up to actual reality as it plays out in Americans' lives. Yeah, and of course, the author of uh, Roe versus Wade, that was decided 7-2, to two, by the way. The dissenters in that case were uh, Rehnquist, appointed by Nixon, and Byron White, appointed by Kennedy. Uh, Byron White was a Catholic. Um, he's entitled to his opinions, but... Harry Blackman wrote the majority opinion that was mainly Republicans that decided that mm -hmm. case, including Warren Burger and Lewis Powell, conservative Republicans. Read the Roe versus Wade case. It's it's a fascinating example of a justice using the the amendments of our Constitution, uh, including some from the Bill of Rights. Uh, and court precedent to justify that a woman has an inherent right to privacy, that she has an inherent right to have the government leave her alone. He literally almost uses those words. And this is why conservatives with the small c uh, probably uh, agree with that kind of thinking. Now, this obsession with Roe versus Wade... And I think that it's very important uh, for people to be made aware of it. You know, Susan Collins came out and talked about stereodesis and all that. But I was going to suggest to her that if she's really concerned about Roe, she should consider switching parties quickly. Because then they can just block any hearings the way uh, Mitch McConnell did. In other words, Merrick Garland was denied a position uh, because of the arbitrary power of Mitch McConnell. Well, in his sort of bogus argument that uh, we're going to let the American people weigh in on this decision and uh, let them decide in the fall. Well, it's Congress who approves yep. uh, or does not approve. Their job is to look at the nominees that the president puts forward, to refuse to do so right up front in the name of you know, some sort of uh, illusory and fictional uh, well, we're going to be moderate and considerate here and let the American people decide is now, of course, revealed to be what it was all along. Just a bunch of nonsense uh, masking uh, an ideological agenda. They're well, not going to do that this time and let the American people weigh in in November. And one other a little quick uh, <clears throat> recommendation regarding the court uh, uh, analysis over the past couple of days. By the way, um, the Adam Liptak piece is uh, 
in the June 29th edition of the New York Times. This came shortly after uh, Kennedy announced that he was retiring. And it shows uh, how, uh, in this past term, uh, Roberts was, in fact, slightly more liberal than Kennedy. And the graphs Mm. changed lines, Thomas being the most conservative. This is based on a so-called Martin Quinn score. Very interesting stuff about uh, the decision-making. It also shows, by the way, that uh, during the year in which Merrick Garland was... uh, denied a position on the Supreme Court, that was actually the most liberal voting uh, record of the court because many of the uh, decisions were split 4-4, and those just meant that lower court rulings prevailed, uh, which is kind of interesting. But in the most recent uh, New York Review of Books, David Cole has an interesting article about the Cake case from Colorado. Uh, David Cole is currently, he's a professor of law, uh, constitutional law, I think, at Georgetown. But the reason I mention him is that he is chairman of the ACLU. <laughs> a, uh, I don't remember this, the 88 uh, presidential election where Michael Dukakis was essentially accused of oh, being, right. being a communist because he was a member of the ACLU. Uh, the ACLU, by the way, is a nonpartisan group that stands up for the Bill of Rights, basically. Um, and I don't always agree with them. Oh, they defend the uh, rights of right-wingers to speak, too. So, And he goes into the uh, public criticism of the cake decision. This was the Colorado cake de- decorating decision uh, in which the court basically ruled 7-2 to two in favor of the masterpiece cake shop. Uh, I don't know if they're still in business. One would think they might have some difficulty. I don't even know about whether or not this case should have been tried. But he he basically disagrees with some of the LBGQT uh, people who are, or whatever they're calling themselves these days, I I get confused, uh, about uh, this being an attack on LGBT people. And he writes, all of these pronouncements are wrong. The decision does not encourage discrimination against LGBT people. On the contrary, this is David Cole, it strongly reaffirmed the importance of anti-discrimination laws and declined to adopt claims of a First Amendment right to discriminate. Nor did the court say it was wrong to punish Phillips, who was the cake maker, Uh, for living according to his beliefs. It simply found that the particular process in determining whether or not he had violated the law was biased against religion, and the court did not release a baker from, quote, the requirement that he serve all customers, quote, unquote. He goes on to point out that the Trump administration had actually tried to expand the parameters of the cake case. So he concludes his article, and I, I, I find this uh, uh, notable. He says, at the, different, the difference between the masterpiece cake shop cake and those involving other bakers is too easily stated to have been a genuine basis for concern. Why then did the court reach this result? The justices may well have considered the statesmanlike uh, revolution, resolution, excuse me, 
rather than the truly definitively on perhaps the most controversial case of the term. The court gave something to both sides and by doing so managed to cobble together a seven-justice majority. In a starkly divided nation, it avoided a sharply divided result. The court handed a nominal victory to the baker, but it was a one-time-only decision that signaled no enthusiasm for sweeping First Amendment uh, rights to discriminate that the baker and the Trump administration had sought. So some of these freedom of religion cases, this is... It just kicks back to the state. Yeah, well, they fall under these strange... Uh, these lawsuits, by the way, many of them are frivolous, in my opinion. They got no business even being heard before the Supreme Court. So in this particular case, by the way, this just sent it back to the state of Colorado, to this Civil Rights Commission, which I'm sure had a fascinating debate about decorative frosting... <laughs> And the art form therein. Um, so you got to sometimes read the fine print. I defer to experts on constitutional law, by the way, because I don't profess to be a scholar of the subject, but I am, I've always been interested in it. And I read a lot of stuff about the First Amendment, about the Gun Amendment, you know, the right to a, to a bail. Um, there were there were some protests in uh, Pittsburgh recently. Uh, we had another police shooting, another tragedy. Um, the police officer was released on bail. That's what the Constitution generally says is what's supposed to happen if you po- post the money. Um, you are presumed innocent until convicted. And you know I don't know enough facts about the police shooting in Pittsburgh uh, to come to any conclusion at the moment because not all the facts are in, but to protest uh, the fact that this police officer was offered bail it strikes me as going a little too far. We should be encouraging... Uh, well, it exhibits a lack of understanding on how the system actually functions. Yeah, and of course there are cases where bail is denied. So, for instance, this chump that uh, went on the shooting rampage at the uh, Annapolis uh, newspaper, newspaper, you know, the worst mass shooting, by the way, from what I know in American history involving uh, an attack on the press, something that Donald Trump was strangely quiescent this weekend. Uh, maybe it kind of occurred to him that all of his rabble-rousing against the media, calling them the enemy of the people... And saying, and back in my day, we took those people out on a stretcher, you know, his provocative nonsense that he's ginned up over the over the last couple of years with his campaign. You know, it was bizarre, of course, after the shooting, he was on a campaign uh, appearance somewhere out in the Midwest. I forget. It might have been the day he was in Wisconsin with the Harley Davidson nonsense. He, of course, issued the pro forma statement, our thoughts and prayers. Yeah, and then the yeah, next yeah. day, he obviously had gotten a tongue lashing from somebody, I suspect John Kelly. And he did come out with a more forceful, uh, sympathetic declaration. A couple of weeks ago, he used uh, three uh, women, mothers that had whose uh, children had been 
had died from the result of illegal immigrants being in the country. He used them as, as campaign props. But what he has yet to do is use one of the mothers for many of these mass shootings that have happened over the last eight months. The worst mass shooting in American history, the, the country and western concert out in Las Vegas. The worst mass shooting in a church, a church in American history. The worst mass shooting at a high school in American history. And by the way, that high school had armed guards, as did the one in Texas, as did Columbine. So when you hear these, uh, these uh, sort of simple answers about arming more school guards, they have been armed. <laughs> um, so, you know, where, where's Trump's sympathy for these mothers, these victims? There's, there's over a hundred of them, and we should not be, um, we, sh we should continue to be outraged about gun violence. Um, you know, on the 11th of June, they had a map of the radius from the Pulse nightclub shooting that occurred on the 12th of June 2016. This was basically the, 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 the one-year anniversary. Before the Vegas shooting. Yes. The, the largest single mass shooting. Yes, the, the largest mass shooting in American history. Trump, of course, tried to exploit that for a uh, political game, getting all of his facts muddled. Uh, the perpetrator was born in America, uh, was not an immigrant. He was the son of immigrants, but... His parents uh, came into the United States uh, under the presidency of Ronald Reagan. But they note that in the two years since the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, there have been 700 mass shootings, as defined as involving more uh, four or more victims across the United States. And this chart shows um, the five-mile radius and the 10-mile radius about shootings. Just in Orlando. Just from the Pulse nightclub as the axis of your circle, uh, 169 shootings within a 5-mile radius, radius, 326 shootings within 10-mile radius. Now, these, of course, are the ordinary shootings that kill, say, one or two people. They're not mass shootings as defined by the FBI. So uh, th this gives you an idea of how extensive this problem remains and is remains un unaddressed. Um, it notes, by the way, that the data here is collected from the Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit research group that tracks gun violence using police reports, news coverage, and other public sources. As a result, the organization reports sometimes differ in number than the CDC. On average, 96 Americans daily die from gun violence. 96. That's an astonishing number. And, of course, we know that two-thirds of those are suicides. We know that some of these mass shootings are actually murder-suicides or attempted murder-suicides. They're murder, but the suicide doesn't happen. Or they're hoping that the police shoot them. Right. That's, that sometimes doesn't happen either, as is the case in the Annapolis shooting. Um, but, yeah, when you have uh, journalists being shot in America 
that's a public policy problem that has to have solutions. And it's unclear how or why anybody like this gentleman, and I don't use the word literally, is allowed to obtain a pump-action shotgun that allows that kind of carnage. Questions that Donald Trump is, is neither answering nor addressing. He's simply ignoring them. Well, he ignored them for a week, but I think it's, you know, it's worth belaboring the point, the extent to which uh, old clown pants has gone out of his way, uh, even when children are present, to uh, vilify and demonize members of the press. Sure. Uh, There was that photo op where the children of the people who cover the White House were allowed to bring their kids in, you know, this is where mom or dad works or whatever, and uh, trying to be genial and jovial, joking around with the kids. He makes a joke about, oh, your parents are well-behaved right now, but they're pretty bad. They're pretty bad. He was went out of his way to try to make these cheap jokes, and uh, the, the sense of humor is just, it's not there. I mean, you mentioned the... Uh, Family, uh, the survivors of, uh, you know, victims of violence or accidents that were involving uh, illegal immigrants who were brought out as props. One of the women, they're all holding large photos of their deceased sons, husbands, whatever. Uh, and the one woman holding a photo, he his comment was, hey, oh, boy, that guy looks like Tom Selleck. Oh, but better looking. Yeah. Uh, it's like, what? This, this woman's holding a picture of her dead son. Right, and that's the joke that he makes. It's well, like, that's Trump's sense of yeah, it's, humor. it's not he has really none. a sense of humor. And so, uh, you know, while it's a good thing that he was quiet uh, in the wake of this uh, shooting at the uh, newspaper in Maryland, uh, and sort of held off from explicit open attacks on journalists. Sometimes he names by name uh, who he's. I'm really steamed at you right now. I, I think. The press should stop covering his tweets. I really do, because the tweets, that's not how a proper chief executive communicates his thoughts to the American people. I just started reading John Meacham's book, The Soul of America, that is a very thoughtful book that examines a couple of key moments in American history where the nature of the office of the presidency allows the American people to sort of look back in on itself and, you know, how the conscience of the nation grows through a crisis. And uh, we've had many presidents who have been failures uh, in, in big ways and in small. But even the ones who have failed have tried to utilize the office as a sort of a an um, actual earnest attempt bully to, to try to, so to put a good message forward. Mm. And uh, this president's refusal to do so or to treat it quite obviously as this is just a TV show and we're winging it is entirely inappropriate uh, and uh, just remarkable that uh, these tweets are given the coverage and uh, and weight that they are. I say... Ignore the tweets. Who cares what the tweets say? And Trump, needless they're usually to s- wrong anyway. Yeah, well, and that's the problem is, and or they're just mediocre and they they're irrelevant um, because his initial response news. to the shooting was, "My thoughts and prayers go out to whatever did." Yeah, uh, people are tired of that one. That that phrase needs to go. 
needs to put in needs to be put on the ash bin of history. But I find it bizarre, by the way, um, that Trump over the weekend had, had made made these astonishing claims regarding uh, his current problems with the trade. Uh, the trade war that seems to be going on, the tariff war. I, I heard that there are going to be tariffs on pencils and strawberry jam. Watch out. Who knows what's what's coming next? Well, GM's ringing the bell now saying, oh, this means more expensive cars, yes. which means less car sales, which means fewer jobs. And, of course, if you look up the actual statistics, America's only deficit is, is basically oil and, and mineral minerals related to oil production, importing petroleum. That's why we have a trade deficit, both with Canada and Mexico, by the way. Big Mexican election mm. uh, yesterday with Obrador. That's going to have a very interesting um, consequence going into the future. Because Obrador, during the campaign, I don't think this was covered very extensively in the United States, all the candidates were unified in attacking Trump. That was easy. But Obrador spoke about ending oil uh, lease, leases in the Gulf of Mexico to multinational oil corporations, talked about ending uh, the importation of gasoline from the United States. So uh, Trump, and by the way, that's a minor trade deficit problem that we have with Mexico. But here's Trump's astonishing claim after he's been fighting for for basically his whole presidency about renegotiating NAFTA, a promise that he can't keep because it's done. I mean, he can impose tariffs, but uh, renegotiating NAFTA is silly. It's like renegotiating the Babe Ruth trade or <laughs> the Louisiana Purchase or the Treaty of Ghent or whatever. In an interview with uh, Maria Bartiromo, he he said this amazing thing. He said, uh, Mr. Trump also signaled during the interview that he would not back away from a brewing trade war between the United States and its allies, skewering trading partners and saying that he would wait until the end of the midterms to sign a North American free trade agreement with Canada and Mexico. Quote, I could sign it tomorrow, but I'm not happy with it, he told uh, Maria Bartiromo, the show's anchor. The three countries have been negotiating for more than a year, but have not reached a deal. Okay, I want to make it more fair, quote unquote. So, this is an astonishing claim. Uh, he's claiming that he could sign a deal, but he's going to wait till after the midterms to get a better deal. And the Canadians and the Mexican governments are saying, we're standing up to you. There's no deal. <laughs> Just to remind you, uh, you are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Yep, just saw Jerry arrive. So, yeah, as he said, he's calling. We'll be taking the airwaves shortly. Uh, I'd like to thank Tom Bray for engineering tonight. Yes, indeed. I saw him at Top of the Park last night. <laughs> uh, obviously, we haven't really finished talking about Justice uh, Anthony Kennedy because. There's, I suspect, going to be another shoe to drop at the uh, towards the end of Maggie Haberman's uh, article in Friday's New York Times about his announced retirement is the bizarre little kernel of information about his son, Justin, ah. who worked for Deutsche Bank and uh, who Trump said 
via uh, Anthony Kennedy, say hello to your boy. He's a special boy. Indeed. And I wonder uh, what they're looking at at Deutsche Bank. A bank the that Mueller. 